previously on Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage. Reginald booked me a room at the Roosevelt. Ah, here you are, Miss Danger, he said with an added enthusiasm. We've been waiting for you. Dear Reginald, as of my writing this, it is July 4th, our nation's birthday. Today I think of the term independence and what it truly means. The rocking of the studio tram was more than exhausting. Mr. Young, I shouted out as I hurried towards him. Miss Danger, George Meade hasn't disappeared, he said with a bit of a smirk on his face. Well, whoever hired me would say otherwise. Well, it's obvious to me that whoever hired you has their information misconstrued because George Meade isn't missing. He's dead. Chapter 4 A Night for a Drink After an emotional and confusing past 24 hours going from impoverished disappointment to hired investigator, I decided to spend my night at a local bar downtown. As much as I love solitary, I guess drinking alone was never my forte. I needed the sounds of people chattering, completely ignoring my presence, and a shot of whiskey reminded me of home. I couldn't help but play my conversation with Galvin Young over and over again in my head. I was almost expecting him to dismiss me completely, but the answer he gave me was a curveball thrown by Satchel Page himself. I didn't know what to make of it. Why would Reginald send me out here to investigate the disappearance of a man who's been dead for 20 years? Is it possible he didn't know he was dead? That can't be because he told me that George had been writing him for 20 years. 20 years, Galvin said. He's been dead for 20 years. I visited the cemetery after leaving Global Studios and saw exactly what Galvin had said. George's tombstone placed between his two parents and described him as being dead by the age of eight. This was a very unusual situation I have found myself in. The drink in my hand was as cold as the trail I was following. It went down with the same sting as well. I placed my five on the bar, readying to call it a night until... Hello? Can I get you another drink? I turned around to see the handsome man that just offered to buy me a drink. He had a similar build to the security guard I met earlier, but with a less intimidating decorum. His black hair nearly disappearing in the dim light of the bar. His jaw more of a round shape than chiseled. His brown eyes like floating butterflies checking out every inch of my face. What are you drinking? He said with a smile that flashed white teeth like the kind you only see in the pictures. I wasn't falling in love. But had a long day and could have used a little stress relief. Whiskey straight, I said as I sat back down. He took my five off the bar and replaced it with the twenty. 
Open a tab, he said to the bartender as he handed me back my five. I took it back without a fuss. Perks of being a woman. Free drinks. No need, I told him. I'm leaving soon. The night is still young. Why would you want to leave so early? I've had a long day. I couldn't help but say with a smile. Well, why don't you tell me about it? He said, taking a seat at the stool next to mine. I'd rather not. As I said that, the bartender put down two more shots of whiskey in front of us. He grabbed one and I grabbed one and we downed them in seconds. As I placed my glass back down on the counter, he began to cough, though he tried to hide it. It was clear he wasn't much of a whiskey drinker. Not used to your whiskey. I'm more of a beer guy, he said as he shifted uncomfortably in his seat. So, beer guy, I said once again, mocking him playfully. What do you do? You in the pictures. He laughed at my question, this time mocking me. You think I'm in the movies? Please, I'm not good looking enough for the big screen. I think you could be an actor. Yeah, well, I'd take being a cop over being an actor any day. Too many bright lights, too many traps. I'm David Haas, LAPD. He said as he extended his strong muscular fingers out for a shake. The name's Danger. Jane Danger. I shook his hand. His grip was firm but gentle. It's as if he knew I would want a strong grip from the way I drank my whiskey, but still room to wiggle in a gentleman's grasp. Well, Miss Danger, tell me, what brings you out to L.A.? How can you tell I'm not from the area? I know a southern accent when I hear one, he said, and I had to give him a bit of credit. My Texas accent had collapsed a bit since moving to Vegas and being around the big city slickers, but it was still very present, and he picked it up beautifully. What brings you out here, Miss Danger? He continued. Here to visit Venice Beach. Venice Beach? Yes, ma'am. Everybody loves Venice this time of year. It's a beautiful place. I should take you there myself sometime. He smiled and I returned the favor. I'm afraid that I'll have to wait. I'm investigating a case. Detective. Very nice. Private investigator. I was hired out of Nevada. What are you investigating? Now you know I can't tell you that. The bartender came and gave us another shot. We took it, this time no coughing. A woman with a code. I like that. You investigating something dangerous? If I was, would you try to protect me? I don't think I could. Danger is your last name, after all. Just then the whiskey hit me, and his smile brightened up the fog that I was stuck in, and there were no words between us, nothing left to say. I leaned in and grabbed the collar of his shirt and pulled him in close for a kiss. He was shocked at first, but once he gave in to me and accepted my pushy nature, he did a fine job. That's all I was looking for. I turned off the water to the shower after cleaning myself from a night of drunken passion between me and David. I half expected him to be gone after I got out. Would have preferred it that way. But as I wrapped my towel around my body and exited the bathroom in my hotel room, I saw him sitting on the edge of the bed in nothing but his underwear. That's when he turned to me and I could see he was reading the letters that I left on top of the nightstand from George Meade. In all honesty, I didn't think I needed to hide them. Guess I was mistaken. Is this the case you were hired to investigate? George Meade, he says, in a bit of a sarcastic tone that upset me in a way. I don't know a single person that likes to have their career mocked. I took a breath and tried not to take it so personally and gathered myself for a calculating answer. You know him? Of course I know him. He's a ghost story. 
I made my way to the edge of the bed, wondering why everyone knew so much about George, and I had never heard of him. What do you mean, ghost story? You don't know. He was this child prodigy 20 years ago. He played the piano before his parents were shot dead outside a concert hall. The story goes that they never found the body. They only said they did, but in reality, he was kidnapped and held against his will, forced to write film scores for all the Hollywood studios and never getting any credit. A tragic story of a talented soul corrupted under the bright lights of Hollywood. A true Hollywood story. Just a tired pianist being mined for his talent. He never sees the light of day, but one day he'll escape his custody and come back to seek revenge for his parents' death and burn the city to the ground. He puts down the letters on the nightstand. It's a warning to steer clear of the Hollywood elite. A ghost story. Nothing more. How do you know that? I asked him as I dropped my towel and put on a bra and a pair of underwear. He didn't seem to mind me getting dressed next to him. Guess he had his fill for the night. I'm a cop. I know every ghost story this town has. I mean, how do you know it's a ghost story? I put on a t-shirt and walked over to the nightstand and picked up the letters. The letters are right here. He wrote them, I pressed. Whoever hired you obviously wrote those letters. Why would he do that? A joke, David said as he rolled over. A joke? He paid me a thousand dollars. Sorry to get your hopes up, but you're never going to see that money. I've already seen it. David turns back over and looks at me, and I can tell by the look on his face. He doesn't believe me. So I went to my suitcase and pulled the envelope of cash that Reginald had given me before I caught the train. Upon seeing the cash, David found himself sitting up in the bed. He gave you that? He also paid for my train, this hotel, and I managed to squeak out some spending money for drinks. I don't think this is a ghost story, I told him as I took off my t-shirt and put on my usual college shirt. I pulled a pair of pants out of my suitcase and sat down on the bed to put them on. Where are you going? If he really was murdered here in LA, then there's a police report, correct? Yeah, we might have it somewhere in the archives. But you can't just walk in there. It's inside the station. That's when I turned back to him with a smirk that immediately let him in on my plan. No, he said lying back down on the bed. I'm not helping you break into a police station. If this really is a cover-up and George isn't really dead, then I need to see these documents. You said they never found the body, then how did they pronounce him dead? I don't know. Can't you just come to bed? I'm sorry, but I was hired to solve a case, and I'm not leaving until I've turned over every stone. It's a dead end. Then I realized that he wasn't going to move without a certain motivation. So I quickly informed him with the cocking of my revolver that I pulled from the nightstand that I am a firm believer of our Second Amendment right to bear arms. He looked at the gun, then up at me in a bit of disbelief, though I could tell he had been on plenty of one-night stands to know that this could be a possible outcome. You're not going to shoot me. You want to take that chance? The man that hired me told me that the last time he heard from George was three weeks ago. I found out today that he booked this room for me exactly three weeks ago. Now, I don't know if this is real or not, but something's going on here, and I have to find out what, and you're going to help me. It was clear by his groan that he was not happy. He threw the blanket off of him and grabbed his pants. Fine, 
but put that thing away before you hurt yourself, he said as he got dressed. Chapter 5 A Gruesome Delight The dawn of sunrise was encroaching on the darkness of night when we arrived at the police station. David got out of his car with a huff, giving me a bit of an evil eye as we walked towards the front door, with which I accurately responded with a smirk of my own. It took a bit of convincing, and may I say, some flirting with the desk secretary to let us into the archives, but David managed to get me by in just a few minutes. The poor girl never stood a chance against David's charm and wit. I had the wherewithal to pick up on his charm from the first hello, and quickly use it for my own advantage, but the desperate secretary swooned at the first bat of his eyes. The archives room was a small dark room that was usually only lit by sunlight coming through the windows. We still had an hour or two before we would be able to fully see, but David had already scouted that ahead of time and brought a flashlight of his own. He held it up to the racks of boxes as I hustled my way around the shelves. The racks were labeled by type of crime, robbery, rape, domestic violence. I made my way to the homicide section. There the boxes of evidence were labeled by last name. I quickly perused over to the M's and found the file on the Meads. As I slid the box off the shelf where it sat, squished in between other names of unfortunate people who had made the homicide shelf, I realized that this box wasn't as heavy as I thought it was going to be. I was expecting the murder case of three people, especially a famous child prodigy, to have more evidence than was indicated by the weight of the crate. I placed the box down on the table and opened it up. Nothing but one file lay inside and two pieces of torn clothing wrapped in plastic bags. The first piece of clothing was a black sliver of fabric that seemed to be torn from a dress. The second was a bow tie, made for a child, with blood splattered all over it. This must have belonged to George, I said in a hushed tone. That's great. Now hurry up. The longer we're here, the more trouble we can get in, David so politely reminded me. Next, I took out the file, a blue folder, that had seemed to fade with its 20 years in the crate. I opened it and saw the official police report of the murder as dated the night of the incident. The report had little information. According to it, there was plenty of witnesses that saw the murder firsthand. They all reported the exact same thing. The Meads walked out of the concert hall. A man approached. He tried to rob them. They refused. Then he shot them all dead on the steps. Then he ran off. Another interesting piece of information is that all the interviewed witnesses described the same person to the T. They all described a black man, early 20s, dressed in all black attire, that shot the three with a revolver, 45. He wasn't wearing a mask or anything to cover his face. The person arrested for the crime was Marshall Jackson. He was currently serving a life sentence in a Los Angeles prison for the crime. The report said the Meads were staying in a hotel in town. I also found it peculiar that the hotel they were staying at before their untimely death was the very hotel where Reginald booked me a room, the Roosevelt. Chapter 6 A Bird in a Cage I had David quickly drive me back to the hotel. Needless to say, he wasn't happy to be driving me around in circles. I took off as quickly as he could stop the car and wished him goodbye. I told him to meet me at the bar tonight and we'll discuss what I find. Before he could respond with the grievance, I rushed into the hotel. That's when I entered the hotel lobby and quickly walked right up to the front desk, where Jean was there preparing for the check-ins and outs for the day. Ah, Miss Danger, he said as he saw me approaching. Out for an early stroll. I hope our other patrons didn't keep you from sleeping. Not at all. I was out looking for someone, and I was wondering if you knew anything about them. That just depends who you're talking about. I see a lot of different faces come through here. Garbo, 
Sinatra, Elvis. I'm looking for George Meade. That name stopped him cold. His entire demeanor seemed to change, almost reminiscent of Galvin Young, but this was a different kind of shift. For Galvin's shift was from annoyed to defensive. Jean's shift was from excited to somber. Though never to break character from the happy to be here manager of the front of the house, he kept a slight smile on his face. The look in his eyes didn't match the smile though. They had a sorrowful backdrop. He stepped out from behind the front desk and slowly approached no one. He was wandering around his own lobby, looking out past the windows into the early morning. I remember the Meads. I had just started here as a young bag boy. They were such pleasant people. Always in a good mood. They always gave me a good tip. Their boy George. I never heard him say a word, at least not with his mouth. By now I realized that this somber wander wasn't so uneventful. He was headed toward a closet, one barely visible to the naked eye. It was painted a pale beige that blended with the left side of the lobby. He took out a key from his pocket and unlocked it. That night before they left for the show, I was in charge of packing up their belongings. You see, after the show, they came right back here, loaded up into a car, and headed for the airport. They were going back to Britain. I overheard them saying that they would never come back to America. I was a foolish boy. I had grown so close to the guests at this hotel. A part of me believed that they would stay forever. I couldn't afford their record, so I decided that they wouldn't mind if I took one for a keepsake. They had so many copies. He dug into the dark closet and pulled a string that switched on a light. Inside was a collection of tools and cleaning equipment. I was looking obviously at a janitor's closet, but in the back was a crate. He shifted things around and slid the crate to the forefront. After a slight dust off, he opened it and pulled out a record case. He turned the light off and closed the closet door. As he turned back towards me, I saw the case that he held in his hand so gently. He only grasped it with his fingertips. The front cover of the case was the painted picture of the wild forest with sunlight coming through the umbrage of the trees illuminating the rest of nature and all its beauty. The flowers on the forest floor were a beautiful array of colors that caught one's eye almost immediately. Around them were birds of all different shapes and sizes. Some were flying, others were seated on branches or in nests. In the center of the painting was the mark of true genius, a birdcage painted black, the only black in the entire painting, made even darker by the cast of shadow that hovered over it. The inside of the cage was empty. It had nothing but clumped up newspapers below, a lonely swing only fit for a small bird. I keep this hidden in plain sight. Hopefully those police never come looking for it. Only play it on special occasions. Even more gently than he held the case, he slid out the record as he stopped in front of the player. No one ever recognizes it. It's almost as if they've forgotten him. But I haven't. And with this song, I never will. He put the record on the player and topped it off with the needle. And as the song began to play, I had never been more curious to why someone was wasting my time playing me a song when they could be giving me real information. Though I let him, figuring it would lead somewhere. Then the first note played, and it was as if the world faded away in that very instant. 
I was taken on the melancholic ride of a tune that had no genre. It was as if the author had no destination. He only wanted to escape. Then I was reminded of George's heartbreaking letter to Reginald. His tangent about the piano inside his walls made perfect sense in that moment. I found myself doing something that I hadn't in years. Crying. I couldn't place where the tears were coming from or why they chose to surface now, but what I could deduce is that this music was from a place that was much deeper than just the fingers of a man. These notes were much more than the sounds of a piano. This author, this artist, went to a place where not many could access. It was a place of pain. It was a place of longing. It was a place of love. And as the song ended and Jean lifted the needle, I couldn't take my eyes off of the record as he slid it back into the case. The look in his eyes were the same as mine, yet somehow even more emotional. It was as if his attachment to George's music had only grown stronger since the first time he heard it. Poor kid. A genius of his time. Taken too soon, he said as we both wiped the tears from our eyes. Then he looked at me. Is this the first time you heard this music? I could do nothing but nod. He made his way back to the closet and put the record away in his crate and pushed the crate into the back of the closet and turned the light off. It's a shame. I wish I could show you more, but the rest of their things were taken to a storage unit. It was then that I perked up, remembering that I was in the middle of an investigation. Which storage unit? The one right off the highway. Their belongings were taken there right after their murders. By this time, he had made his way back to the front desk. Aren't you in the least curious to why I want to find a dead man? He grinned and leaned in close. I could tell he had been wanting me to ask that question since the conversation started and that he had already answered it many times in his head. Believe me, Miss Danger. No one has a knack for sticking their nose in places where it doesn't belong like myself. I've been doing this 20 years. I know when not to pry. A woman looking for a dead man isn't something to pry in, I said with a chuckle. I wouldn't be too quick to pronounce him dead. Every time I hear his music, I feel he's more alive than ever. Wouldn't you agree? He asked me with a certain confidence that didn't require an answer. I only turned around to the front door realizing that he was right. Those tears I felt when the record was playing, that's what I was investigating. Even if George was dead, it was his memory that I was fighting to keep alive. Then I realized that his memory of the night of their murder was an exact dispute with the police reports. Wait, did you say that the Mies were picked up the night of their murder out in front of the hotel? I did. They got into a car and went to the airport. Next thing I knew, they were dead. Deeper and deeper I go, and more confused I become. How did all of those so-called witnesses get it wrong? 
Why would they confess to seeing a man shoot the family out in front of a concert hall when they had already made it back to their hotel and were heading for the airport? One thing's for sure, I had my next objective, to get into that storage unit. On the next episode of Jane Danger, A Bird in a Cage. The heat hit me like a brick as soon as I walked into the trailer that was doubling for the main office of the storage facility. I'm here to take a closer look at the storage unit of the meats. It was time to talk to the one person who would be happy to give me some straight answers. The one person I was starting to suspect was the only innocent man in this whole town. It was time to speak to Marshall Jackson. That's when my train of thought was interrupted by the black car behind us that was gaining speed. Jane Danger, a bird in a cage is an official copyright of Avery Goodwin. Voice recording by Avery Goodwin. Sound mixing by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Score by Averex. Foley by the Avery Goodwin Studio. Some of the sounds heard here were downloaded royalty free from pixabay.com.